0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes, Pat? I can't help but notice you have a new puppy out there. I do have a new puppy. Have you thought about getting some expert advice on how to raise
1: that puppy? Ouch. (laughs) Well, it just happens that we do have an expert as part of our sponsor group. Really? Yeah, Dan Croft Canine. Do they run puppy class? They run amazing puppy classes. What
0: What on earth do they do there?
1: They've got whole ranges of foundation for puppy school. So they're running a complete socialization package and they're doing a whole range of different levels for puppies. And that's what they really wanted to emphasize is that they are experts in puppy raising and training. Where are they experts in puppy raising and training? In Toronto, Canada. Whoa. So if you were in Toronto, Canada,
0: yep. and you had a friend, a client, a relative, just anybody who was getting a puppy mm. and you wanted to set that puppy up for success. Yep. You could
1: probably send them to Dancroft, can I? If I was over in Toronto, Canada with my new little Rottweiler puppy, Mando, I would go over and I'm I swear this, I would go over and I would do the socialization program with them. Great I idea. love what they're doing. Have you seen their setup online? Oh amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. They had a tyre with a medicine ball with the pit bull doing a drop stay on top of it. My goodness. Amongst a dozen other dogs that were doing all similar things, like on BOSU balls and all sorts of things. My goodness. It was great. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, speaking of your puppy, mm-hmm. what's going on with his nutrition? Couldn't go past canine surgicals. Supplemented up. Supplemented up to the help. My goodness. Yeah. So he should have arms like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the time we finished. Where did you get those canine surgicals from? From Norel Cook. Narelle Cook. How know. do you how do you know her? <laughs> <laughs> Funny that she's got the same last name as
0: me. Yeah. The supplier is very local. Absolutely. CanineCeuticals, but ha- legit, it's probably the best supplements available. Best for
1: supplements available, human grade, gone through the absolute rigorous testing program. I mean, Narelle's got stat sheets on it and everything like that on demand. So if people want to know what they're actually putting into their dog's body supplement wise, they can reach out to her and she's got all the facts and figures before she even Put it down as a physical product. She spent years and years researching it before it was actually come to market. So Amazing. great stuff. Yes, the puppy's definitely on it. All our dogs are on it. And there's a shit ton of people around Australia and New Zealand who are taking canine surgicals. And the feedback is astronomical. Amazing. Yep. Do you plan on taking Mando on your motorbike? If I did, you know who I'd have to go to,
0: don't you? You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound boxes. Dog, rowdy Hound dog kennels. Yeah. Yeah. From Horny George. George Kittredge himself. You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound dog kennels to go on the
1: back of your motorbike. How good is his social media? It's the best. Yeah.
0: I love watching the dogs cruise around motorbikes. I think it's one of the coolest things ever.
1: They've got their little doggles on. Yeah. You know, like we talk about living the best life. Well, for people who are motorcyclists, they can do both. I'm serious about thinking about getting one. But then I've got to train a, I, I don't know if having a Rottweiler on the back of a bike is going to be a great <laughs> idea. Of a
0: sport but, bike.
1: <laughs> but, well, uh, I think you should do it. Maybe one day when I've got a m- smaller mid-sized dog, uh, I would get a Rowdy Hound dog kennel and mm. uh, I could travel around so I could not only enjoy the company of my dog, which hundreds of people seem to be doing across the United States of America, and I could motorcycle at the same time. So two things that are very dear to my heart. Coming together.
0: All right. This ad's going on for a long time. Mm. I need to get out of here and go and train some dogs. Yep. But do you know where I got the equipment that I'm going to use to train those dogs? The goat. The goat. The Billy Goat's gruff. I'm so
1: (laughs) (laughs) The wiener himself. (laughs) Ironswick
0: dog quip. Yeah. If you're not buying all your dog training gear from them. Yeah. I don't know where you're fucking getting it from. Well. If not from
1: Thurman, Ironswick dog quip. The Irons a wiener. How the hell does he sell anything being such a grumpy old bastard? He's
0: online now. He's got a website. That's you right. Can, they
1: don't have to deal with him. You direct. can actually <laughs> buy things off the website.
0: You can actually do it now. Yep. EinzwickdogQuip.com.au Dot yep. com Or just dot com. Oh. Probably one of them. I don't it's know. one of them. Just, we'll put, put it in the yeah, you, yeah. You'll click. You'll find a link. you <laughs> buy some stuff. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm at my house, but I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Yeah, I'm at my house too, funnily enough. Yeah. I just realized as I left my little space for you to talk, I was insinuating that you were at my house. <laughs> it would certainly solve our internet problems.
1: Yeah, it's been crazy, bro. And it's late <laughs> um, on a school week. We're both shagged. We had busy days. Yeah. It's very late. and uh, but we we're thought, doing it. We're doing it. We're doing it for the people.
0: We're martyrs, really. Yeah, just talking into microphones, doing the hard yards.
1: You sound like one of those little kids at the moment who's stayed up way too late on a school night, and they've they're going, "Oh no, I'm yeah, right. Like I'll keep delirious. going." Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much me at the moment. Yep.
0: Hey, we've been getting some really incredible feedback. I had a bunch of people message me about the last few episodes getting lots of screenshots and stuff, people tagging us and things. So it's it, it's what keeps us going. It's why it's worth being up late, making sure that we get stuff out. It doesn't stop people harassing us. Hey, well, how come you guys used to be really regular? There was an episode every, every Tuesday, but um, we're doing our best.
1: We've just been literally talking about that now, about trying to get back on top of getting the weekly show out. It's just that my workload has increased incredibly and Now so is yours because you're actually working for someone else and it's not just the Pat Stewart home show anymore. It's uh, you're out, you're whoring for a videoing company now. and
0: Yeah, yeah, selling
1: my soul. Yeah. Hey, Hey, um, we should jump into it. Hey, before you do that, you were just talking about the appreciation of earlier episodes and the episode Mm -hmm. that I did, the most dangerous advice part two, where I talked about my time crossing over periodically to force free training I actually expected a shitload of heat over that uh, because I have had some conflicting conversations with people in that in the past where they primarily said that I was a quitter and I didn't try hard enough and two years isn't long enough, et cetera, et cetera. And there might be some truth in some of those comments. I'm not going to discredit them and say that's not true. There might be some truth in it. But I actually expected people in the community to sort of reach out and it not being a popular conversation. And it still might not be, you know, they might not feel comfortable about raising that. But what I have had is I have had an overwhelming amount of people privately message me and tell me that they were really sorry to hear that I had to go through that, and especially the story about the Kelpie and so forth. They said that was Mm -hmm. hard to hear. I was very appreciative. I was very thankful that people shared in that moment because it was hard to experience too. As I said in that episode, and I want to reiterate that clearly in the messages ahead, is that I don't see those people as being bad people. They weren't bad people. It's very possible that it was just a bad experience for me and I wasn't the right student for that work. So there are a couple of things that I think there could have been improved and certainly have been more so improved in later years. You know, as the decades have rolled on and I've seen other people come into that community, it's more refined. Mm -hmm. People have done a better job of it. I think people understand it. There's been better cross-sections and communications with people and less – stipulations, you know, no, this is my side and that's your side. And I feel that overall there's been better communication amongst the communities that exist in the dog training realm. But back then it was new territory. It was certainly very, very new for me to go from what I was used to Mm -hmm. and what I was doing into something that I'd never experienced before. I said it on that podcast and I'll, once again, I'll repeat myself. I found things there that made me a better trainer. I experienced Mm -hmm. things that made me, understand how to be more patient, how to be a little kinder, how to be a little bit more agile in some of the areas that I needed to be. So I didn't walk away from it as a terrible experience overall. There were just things about it that I didn't enjoy. Whereas there are things that I'm very appreciative of and some of those people I'll never forget them because they helped me become better at my craft and helped me to be able to explain that to other people where I didn't know how to talk about that before. And because of those experiences, I now have something to impart that I wasn't whole in before. And I think that gave me entirety – well, not entirety overall. That sounds very arrogant, but it was able to complete me better than what I was at that point in time. Thank you to the people who reached out. Thank you for the people who were supportive of that and shared in that story. And I always do appreciate talking to people. Speaking of, I was just telling you before, I was at the Dog Lover Show Saturday just passed mm. and got to bump into some great people down there that I haven't seen for ages. Marsha Davies was there got to have a walk around and oh, chat yeah. with her. Yeah. Myriad of people met the guy who owns and started off Antonol Rapid, David oh, yeah. Ellsworth and his team. They're some of the most supportive people. They've been supporting Narelle and I uh, on a conference that we're just about to do in Canberra next week. Really had a great chat with David, very impressive people. And they're just like, they're so generous to the community, but it's a great product as well. So If anybody wants a Omega-3, which Narelle loves, she just totally endorses it. She won't even start her own one up because she says Antinol's just doing such a great job of it. Why compete against it? We use their product. She supports it entirely. So I know that this is not the Antinol show, but I just wanted to say thank you very much for for being so supportive. They listen to our show and support our show as well. And I really, their their product's great. All our dogs are on it. If you're not on Antinol and you're looking for a good Omega 3 product, then definitely do yourself a favour and get it. Like I said, they're not a show sponsor. They probably like to be, but they're not. But the product is good. We've always said that if anybody out there is doing good work in the community, we want to recognise them. So it was a real pleasure to see that. Super, super proud of Norrell. It was her first trade show, first time she ever put a display together. She did an outstanding job. Her friend Deb, who's been just a great support to us as well, it was just fantastic in all the assistance that she gave Narelle on that stand and helping her out with the weekend. So I can't thank her enough as well. So it was really really cool. My team were down there PRE was there, Canon Evolution was there. That were doing uh, they had people stacked three deep at their stand, so it was good to see them talking to so many people and getting things done. So yeah, it was great. It was really cool. But the, the whole point of me rambling on about this, there was a guy that came up to us and he listens to our show. He posted it on Instagram as well, but he kind of walked up and he goes, hey, man, can I get a picture with you? I said, oh, you listen to the podcast, do you? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, is Pat here? I said, no, Pat's not here. Well, not that I know of. And he said, oh, man, you guys have changed my life. He goes, I just can't believe that people like you are walking around in this place. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I thought that's awesome that things that you and I have been talking about have had such a great experience on people and they've had so many good takeaways from it. So- Yeah, that was really nice. I was engaging with quite a few people that listened to the show. There were people stopping by talking to Rel. There was people who were stopping me as I was walking around just looking at other places and saying, oh, you know, I listened to your show. Thanks, Heap. So thanks, guys. That's a nice thing to hear. That's cool. A nice thing to experience. And as you said, you know, when people have been tagging us in stuff that have been mattering to them, that have had an impact on them, that's why we're happy to stay up late and do the podcast for you. Yeah, it's cool. It makes it worth the effort, that's for sure. Mm.
0: Hey, so. We got tagged in a post and the post is in the IACP group because it's a closed group. I won't say who it's from, but it says, food for thought. How much of dog training is pure intuition and how much did you learn from others? Did you have times where you wonder how the heck you knew what to do with the dog in the moment or on the fly? Obviously, this increases with experience, but how much is just plain intuition? I thought that was- Uh, other people as well that tagged us in it and were like, hey, this should be a podcast topic. I agree. That's probably a pretty good podcast topic.
1: It's a very good podcast topic. And until you remind me of it, I didn't actually think about it, but I do recall reading it after you read it out. I'm going to relate to myself in that question because I did some thinking just as you were talking about it before. And I think there is some intuition in it for sure. I remember when I was a child and the connection that I had with dogs I really had a kinship with dogs when I was a young guy. I really connected with dogs, all the family dogs that we had. There was a level of communication between me and the dog that I felt connected all the time, really well connected. And in some cases, I felt dogs make more sense to me than what people do. I remember on all my uncle's farms when I used to go and visit to different uncles or you know, even their properties, my uncle Lee, who used to be a, you know, he used to have a marana and he was avidly into hunting and fishing and everything like that. We've discussed Lee on the show before, but Lee had a Mirana, and he was really one of those people who was one of my very first mentors in a lot of outdoorsy style of life. Mm-hmm. And especially in introducing me to things like, like I said, with hunting and fishing and, you know, he always had a dog with him and he was always doing these great outdoorsy things. So that sort of gave me a real interest in it. I loved him. He, like he was probably one of my first heroes I ever had in life somebody that I immediately looked up to and loved spending time with him. Anything he was into, naturally I was into, I was shadowing around loving life and doing some great stuff. And a big part of that was having a dog around us. But then when I'd go over to Tassie, you know, my uncle's owned farms, even my uncle in country Victoria, he had a big hay farm, big wheat farm, I should say, and he had sheep on there and he had dogs and so forth. And, you know, you'd get up early, five o'clock in the morning, go out and sit on the tractor and there'd be dogs there and... They'd be driving the sheep and I'd go, I had the job of going out and feeding the dogs or hanging out with the dogs and stuff like that. I loved it, mate. I absolutely loved it. It made sense to me. You know, like I had other mm. friends and, and colleagues and so forth when I was a kid and they kind of go, Uh, dogs, go yuck. They would just talk about them like they were dirty or filthy. But to me, they were interesting and fascinating and I couldn't believe how these dogs knew how to herd sheep when, when I was a little kid, you know, like that to me was intriguing where other kids would find riding their bikes intriguing or, you know, building a cubby house intriguing, I would. I found it more intriguing to find out why does the dog do that? How does the dog know how to do that? I remember saying on the show years ago that one of my uncles goes, oh, it's magic. And then as I got older, they'd sort of tell me this is how you do it and so forth. And that was just awesome. So I think there is some early intuitiveness in that. But to complete it, you need mentoring. And still now, even years and decades after, there's still things that I watch people do. And I think, I wonder how they did that. What's, mm. what's that little bit of craft? Like, how did you achieve that little thing with the dog? And you can have theories into it, but it's not it's not until somebody reveals it. And it might be really, really simplistic. It could be this whole series of backward chaining or for even forward chaining where you're just thinking, I've never thought of it like that, that you intuitively broke it down into those components. And you've got people out there who are real deep thinkers. One of these people I'm going to name who I've never been mentored by or never really got the chance to have a conversation with him. And I'd love to is Irmar Van Muller. And I was watching a clip mm. over the weekend where he's taught one of his dog monkey, I think it was to play connect Four with him where the dog is actually mm. dropping, you know, those little discs into the connect Four game and lines it all up perfectly. And he's playing alongside the dog. Now, Because I trained a parrot to do that with a dollar coin, I know how he did it, but it's still amazing nonetheless. And that's just one of Mm. 50 leading things that he's taught that dog to do and his other dog, Jumpy, like painting and all sorts of stuff. You know, that's just miraculous. Now, I know, Mm. you know, on top of this, I know there's been people around the world who have taught animals to do it like I've seen an elephant do it at a zoo and I've seen uh, elephants do it when I went over to Thailand and so forth. I've seen people do those sort of things and Mm. it's just been incredible to watch them do it. So I know other people have done it in different species, but the fact that he's got that dog to do like 50 or 60 different skills that are leading the field compared to other people, and maybe Omar's just one of those people who is just thinking what can I do next and how can I break this down and he's an incredible deep thinker in his field or maybe he's, um, you know, like communicating with other people and they've given him ideas where it sparked into something inspiring and he thought, yep, mm. that's, um, that's how I can teach my dog to do this next thing. I do believe, yes, in a very, very long-winded fashion into leading into that question, I believe that there is a level of intuitiveness But I also believe that in order to really kick that intuitiveness off, you need to be with a community of people to inspire you to think what next and how can I Mm. add the building blocks of this next thing. I believe that greatness is never achieved on your own. It is achieved within the community. And there's so many things that a good community will help you or even inspire you to do.
0: I'm going to go on a tangent. (laughs) Yep. You made me think of something when you were talking about it. Omar's incredible, right? Like unbelievable. Some of the stuff that he has that dog able to do. I haven't really gotten to see him train really, because like he really, he tends just to post videos of completed tricks and stuff, which he posts heaps of. And there's a little bit of training stuff, but there isn't, you know, I haven't seen much of it if there is. But when you talk about him playing connect four with the dog, I don't think that he intimates or or anybody's expected to believe that the dog's really playing Connect Four, like that the dog understands that there's a winner and a loser to this no. game and that four of the things in a row. It's just doing a behavior right? so that's like, trained. I don't think, yeah, it's just doing a trained behavior. Have you seen the dogs, and there's a few of them all over Instagram, that push the buttons that talk? Have you seen those? Yeah, dogs and horses. Yes, I have. So there are some of them that have – 30 odd buttons or more on the floor and the dog is putting together sentences. And a lot of people think that those dogs are really conveying intent and that they're actually attempting to communicate via the buttons. (laughs) There was one that I had an interesting conversation with someone a little while ago about, there was one where the dog, it was saying that something hurt. I can't remember what it was, but it was saying like it was, its feelings were hurt and that it was sad. And I was trying to explain to someone what a load of bullshit that was, how like this is just a trained series of behaviors. And if the dog was really actually able to say that it was experiencing pain via pushing the button, how do you think the person trained that? Mm. Right? Because I was trying to explain like, if the dog is just pushing buttons and I'm sure that they've reinforced the shit out of that and you push the dog pushes buttons and the dog hits different ones and different ones have different kinds of reinforcers and the dog just experiments with hitting the buttons. And if you leave the camera rolling for long enough, eventually the dog hits a buttons in a series that is amusing and you can make up a sentence from. And once you've trained a sequence of pushing the buttons in a particular order, you can then put a question in front of that and it appears as though the dog is is replying in a sentence to it. But this one in particular, one video was the dog was saying it was in pain over something. And I and someone was trying to explain to me, like, oh, look, it's true. Do you think it's true? And I was like, well, the thing is, there's no way that a dog has that level of cognition, I don't think. There is evidence, you know, and that dog chaser, they've demonstrated that a dog can understand complete sentences, can understand complete sentences, as in go get a thing. And or it could say, bring to me a thing or go and touch a thing and the things could be different. So the dogs are capable of understanding a sentence. It has like a direction. It has a verb and a noun. It can put together that it's being told to go and interact with a particular thing in a particular way or to bring a particular thing to a particular spot. So, you know, there's three components to to that and a dog can understand it, but I don't think a dog can put that back together, especially not via pushing buttons And I think that's what gets left out of that conversation with all these people that think that that's real and that the dog really is conveying these complex sentences via pushing the buttons. I know some stuff about dog training. I wouldn't dream of saying I know everything, no way, but I can't think of a way to teach those things, especially when the dog is conveying that it's in pain. How did they teach the dog that? right? Like I think that's the question that gets kind of left out because a lot of the people doing this are like, oh, the dog, me and the dog have this beautiful bond and this beautiful communication. It's like, okay, but what did you do to the dog to demonstrate pain to it in order to give it an association to what pain is and being able to convey that to you? I'm surprised that we don't talk about this more, like in the industry that like real dog trainers aren't conveying more concern over this. Or do you think that it is? And am I exaggerating or am I overreacting or is this like a really bad case of anthropomorphization? Because I think like we often talk about anthropomorphizing dogs, but I think that's really what it is. Saying that a dog could be jealous, right? Like I think probably a dog can be jealous. Yeah. We say that, oh, that's anthropomorphizing. It's like, well, your dog probably could feel that way or something that is a lot like it. But inferring that a dog can, can put together complete sentences and say like how it feels in a certain situation via pushing those buttons, if that for me seems a stretch
1: too far. What do you think? Your take on that is very interesting. And I'm inclined to agree with you in what you're saying. We teach dogs complex skills, forward and backward training with many of the things we do. It's, it's part of the NDTF course. It's part of uh, a lot of sport dog training. And dogs will be cued and rewarded over a series of time and they'll start understanding how to incrementally piece together something that is very simplistic into something that's quite complex over a series of time. It can be something that you're doing with, let's say, six or seven cues that are then faded away and it's given one cue, and then the dog completes that whole behaviour – where it was doing one behaviour, one one cue, one behaviour, one cue, one behaviour, one cue, one behaviour, until the chain starts to form and then you break down the necessity for giving all those cues, it becomes one cue and the dog completes the whole behaviour and then is rewarded at the end of it. Why the fuck couldn't Mm -hmm. the dog be doing that with a light show? Yeah. You're exactly right with what you're saying. Well, I think it is. I haven't got any complete evidence to say that there isn't a dog in the world that can't do that. I just don't have the evidence, but I also don't have the faith. I don't have the faith. That's the area that it's completely lacking because it's like watching some of those magicians tricks where you're just thinking, wow, that's just amazing until someone shows you it's an illusion. You're just not seeing the illusion for what it is. And I think some people Mm. sometimes want to believe so much. There's the necessity to believe, oh, yes, might see, there you go. There's the evidence that I needed. And when you read books like Behave – where it talks about all you need is just one slight bit of evidence to increase your bias and immediately you're on board. You might have been on the edge. You might have been sitting right on the fence of whether you believe it or not. But as soon as somebody who seems half creditable, they came in and say, yep, it is, there it is. You don't need to look at any more evidence. I've just provided it for you. People at home will go, yep, okay, I'm on board. I'm drinking mm-hmm. your Kool-Aid, son. You know whose opinion I would really like on it? Even though I think we're up there on the rational and realistic side of it, I'd love to hear what Roger Abrantes thinks about something like this. I'd love to hear from an anthology point of view on where he sees this sitting. Maybe at some stage we can reach out to Roger and put this question to him and say, what's your thoughts on it?
0: I'd love that to be true. I would love it. And I remember the first time, there's a few different Instagram accounts of people with dogs that do it, but. I remember the first time I saw one, I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is amazing. (laughs) Like even (laughs) I got sort of caught up in it. I was like, that dog can talk via pushing those buttons. This is the greatest thing ever. These people are amazing. This dog is amazing. But then I started sort of seeing more and more of them. And even sort of after watching a few of the videos of the first one that I saw, I was like, hmm, I'm not so sure that the dog can put all of that together. I would love it to be true, but I just can't imagine that a dog has that sort of level of cognition. But what I will say, and it's what I wrote down when you were talking before, when I was I was thinking about it, was when I first saw. Remember, like how obsessed I got with Dancing with Dogs. Mm. It was probably twelve months ago or more, right? When when I was like, oh, like I watched that show. What was it called? We are the champions or something. Like something that? like that. And yeah, it, it was had, a Netflix had, series. Um, yeah. And it had Alita Polina, the Russian champion dancing with dogs person. And I was sort of enamored by it. I watched it and I, I started watching a lot of Dancing with dog stuff and people were sending it to me and I certainly haven't done any of it competitively or been engrossed in, haven't gone to a club or anything like that. But I was really curious about was how they trained some of the behaviors because it seemed to me like a lot of the, the dogs were really dancing. Some of the attitude and inflection that the dogs had in certain behaviors, I was really impressed by. And I thought, "Mm, you know, it's the way that you train it and blah, blah, blah. But of late, because, you know, I've been mucking around with my own dogs a bit more. I've been doing a lot more sort of flowy move through positions. And I posted like a meme the other, not a meme, a reel the other day of me, you know, at the seminar that I did there in Sydney, there was a lady uh, with her dog, Rufus, who she does dancing. And there was a part where she uh, had the dog sort of in a front, you know, facing her. She'd done a bunch of different stuff. And then she turned the dog to a stand like he was facing her and he turned 180 degrees and stood rock solid facing away from her. And I was like, oh, my God, how the hell did you train that? Like, it really impressed me. Mm. And I got all excited about it. And then... Just the other day, I was I was looking for some footage of something else and I found the footage of that because Jazz filmed it and I was like, oh, that's cool. I should go out and train that. And at the time I was like losing my mind. I was so excited about how like how cool it was and how hard it would be to train. And then I sort of got to the drawing board and I was like, all right, how am I going to train this? And I was like, okay, my dog has a spin. I can spin him around in a circle. He has a pretty solid stand and he has a you know looking to a, a reinforcer, like a target. So I was like, you know, I can probably just join all those three things together. And in about eight reps, I had the same behavior. Mm. (laughs) I was like, ah, shit, that was, that went fast, but it was because it's five years and eight reps, right? Like we had all the pieces that we could just put together. But the more I'm fucking around with my dog in that kind of way, kind of just playing with him, not so much as in playing with him as in playing tug of war, but with the ball or the, you know, whatever. But playing with him as in like transitioning through positions, I can see that he enjoys it. I can see that. And I do think that, you know, I've kind of come around to thinking that those, a lot of the Dancing with Dogs dogs, they are really dancing. They are really actually sort of enjoying the flowy movement with their person. Like there's a connection that comes of that. I am really come around to the idea of thinking that I don't think that that is just a series of linked behaviors that the dog is ultimately leading to reinforcement. Now, like I think that that is what it is as a bigger picture, but I do truly think that the dog enjoys it along the way. And I think, you know, depending on how it's taught and all that kind of stuff, but I've noticed it in my dog, that he enjoys weaving through my legs and, and going into positions and he, he, those behaviors are quite persistent. Like I don't need to reinforce very often at all because the process of flowing with me like that is reinforcing, mm. especially when he knows the behaviors, he knows the positions that we're going to hit and I move quickly to so that he only has a very small window in order to get into them. And so like that challenging moving fast in order to get there is exciting to him and he enjoys doing it. So like I've built myself up from the point of watching dancing with dogs and going clearly that is just a series of learned behaviors that the dog is doing. And the dog's not really dancing. The dog is just hitting the beats, doing the things that it's told because it wants to lead to reinforcement. I've changed my mind on that. And I think that dogs really can dance. I think that dogs can move with you in unison and that dogs can enjoy doing that. And the act of doing that can be reinforcing in itself. And that's why the dog would want to do it. They can really enjoy it. They could really want to do it but I just can't bring myself to think that dogs are communicating in English via pushing buttons that they've been trained has the meaning of the word of the button. I just can't bring myself to do it. Like I just can't make that leap. I think that it's a leap too far. I I just can't put that together.
1: I'm going to tell a guitar story. Go. <laughs> Occasionally I switch around on YouTube and just watch a few fantastic guitar players playing in different disciplines. One of the guys was talking about how when you first start off, it's something that you're very, very conscious about what you're doing. It's work. You're conscious about trying to keep time. You're conscious about where your fingers are, how the guitar sounds, and constantly analyzing how terrible you are while you're doing it. And he said, but then it gets to a stage where you stop thinking about that And it becomes more about just freestyling around with the music and the music and you melding because you're the instrument. The guitar is wood and strings. Ultimately, you're the instrument. You're the inspiration for where that sound comes from. It's all you. That's one of the tricks of getting into music is realizing that you're the music. It comes from you. It comes from your soul. And the more you stop caring about where your fingers are, how in time you are, And you, because you're skilled at this time, you know, which I'm not, but when you hear musicians that are, they're skilled after a period of time and it's more about just making music with that bit of wood with strings on it or a piano or whatever it is. It's more about Mm -hmm. just enjoying being in the moment and hearing these beautiful sounds coming out of it. This leads me to something that I was thinking about, a conversation when Stephen Lindsay, who, you know, is going to be at the ISCP conference this year or – Talking at it, I don't know how he's appearing, but Stephen, when he was in Melbourne about twelve years ago doing the NDTF conference, I was very, very fortunate to being given the position, the chaperone. Steve and we got to spend quite a lot of time together, and he actually came to my house. He came around my house. He had lunch. We hung out. I was talking to him about one of my dogs who was doing tracking at the time, and he said, "Oh, I'm very interested in tracking." He said where he was leading with this was fundamentally the same thing that I was talking about with playing guitar is that at the start, it's a lot of routine. It's a lot of laying the track when I'm talking about the discipline of footstep tracking. So laying the track, setting up the scent square, stepping out and starting off on a continuous schedule of reinforcement, then moving into a intermittent schedule of reinforcement with food every second, every third, every fifth, every 10th step or whatever. But Stephen said, funny thing, and I noticed this myself because I I literally lit up as soon as he said it. He said, it's a funny thing about tracking. He said, first of all, it starts off as very much a routine that the dog is learning. Like they're masters of olfaction, but they're still learning what is it that you want me to do? What Mm -hmm. is this odour that you want me to track? And what is the discipline that you want me to do? You know, like I'm a dog and my olfaction is far superior than yours, Mm -hmm. but what is it that you want me to do? So the dog is learning in unison with what you want it to do. But once that is learned, it then becomes perpetually reinforcing to the dog. And it's not so much about following each step anymore. It's about the enjoyment of following this odour and what it leads to and how fun that is for the dog. That kind of got me thinking about what you were talking about with dancing with dogs because one of my former students that was just did the I just did the course with Rachel she brought her dog out and was doing some uh, I filmed it I put a little uh, snippet up on my Instagram story and people were blown away with it and uh, I was watching her training with a dog and yeah sure she's communicating with the dog regularly she's doing things but that dog loved it. Like that dog was really Mm. like, this is the best thing that's happening in my life right now. That dog was smiling. You know, it had a big, happy grin on its face the whole time. I don't think I've thought as deeply about this as you have, but I was certainly paying attention to what I was seeing and I was watching and I thought, this dog fucking loves this. While everybody was clapping and cheering, that dog couldn't give a fuck about who was in the room. It could not care less. It wasn't worried or focused about any of them. This dog didn't come in this room regularly, but it, it, it was just like, I don't give a fuck about this. I'm doing something amazing here. You know, I'm connecting with this person who I love and I enjoy being with. And sure, I'm getting rewarded through it. I'm under no illusion that the dog is still not doing it for reinforcement. But why isn't the action itself reinforcing sometimes? And this goes back to what Steve was saying before about Once you get into the skill of it in either tracking or even the earlier example I was talking about guitaring and noodling is what guitarists call when they just get on a guitar and they just start playing a pentatonic scale or something like that but then they add rhythm into it and soul and feeling and they bend the strings or they do a bit of vibrato or something like that because it all sounds amazing, you know. It's not just a routine anymore. It's not just work. It's not just part of the skill set that you have to do. It sounds good and it's fun, you know, like it's just nice to hang Mm -hmm. out on the guitar and make some noise where it's nice for the dog to get into the field and just follow a track where it's nice for a dancing dog to just hang out with you in a place. And, you know, like you and the dog just connecting and vibing well together. What's wrong with that? Like what's wrong with any of that?
0: Nothing. And I think how this ties into our actual topic about intuition versus like, you know, the application of the science, like learning to do these things is that I think there's a there's a fusion of the two I think both are really important for sure some of the the greatest dog trainers that I've ever had the privilege of spending time with it's super intuitive to them and and most people have never heard of those people because they can't necessarily teach very well in what they do because it's intuitive they don't they've never learned it mm. it just comes naturally to them and so they very often don't actually know the importance of some of the beats that they hit and why they hit it and when they just know that it's the right thing to do. It just feels like the right thing to do. And that's why I think for sure, some of the best dog trainers I've ever had the privilege of spending any time with no one will ever hear of because they can't assist somebody else in becoming as good as them. So they'll continue to train dogs and, and do that, but they can't pass on that message because they never learned it. But I think the opposite is true as well. Like there's people who really have no intuitive understanding of dogs by understand the science and the application in the, I won't say the art, but really the, the science of it. They've learned, they understand operating classical conditioning. They know how to give the right inputs to the dog in order to get the outputs from, from the dog that they want. And, and I think that both of those are fine, but I think that they each have a ceiling. And I think that the, you know, the, the, the best and probably the most productive form of dog training is the fusion of the two, mm. which is you know, that that level of intuition where, you know, you move with the dog and you understand this is what's good for you and, and a level of connectedness with the dog, sort of understanding, I know who you are, I know what you're into, I know how to sort of motivate you, I know what you enjoy, I will enjoy this with you, we can move together, no matter what the training is. But I think that hates its limits then. Sometimes when say you can't read the dog, or something might be peculiar with the dog. The dog might have some unknown backstory that is influencing its present. You know, there was an interesting post that Justin Rigney put online a little while ago. You know, he had a video of him working with a dog, and they were using an e-collar and they were biting a tug. And he was like, you know, which quadrant of operant conditioning are we in? People were giving their opinions, and all I wrote was that all of them. I was like, you know, because all of the operant processes of the past influence behaviors in the present. You know, like, I feel like that's one of the things that can be tricky when you're dealing with sort of, if you're just dealing with connecting with the dog and and how intuitive am, are you in the training is that like that sometimes can fall over when you don't know how the dog got to that point, or there's some sort of scar underlying issue that you just sort of don't know about, right? And so when you're like, you're just going to connect with the dog and and play and that kind of stuff, it can be sort of difficult if you then don't have the pieces to put together. And that's why I like the combination of the two where you're then like, hmm, I can read and I can give inputs and I can be a little bit disconnected from this. And I can just go to a very operant or classical process or whatever, you know, fusion of the two and be a little bit more disconnected and just push the buttons that are necessary in order to get the outcome. And then I can bring the dog back in to seek out that level of connection again. So being able to flip flop in between the two, I think is super important. I don't think anyone can be super successful with just one alone, like Mm. the application of the science and the knowledge and all that, like you can do really well, but you'll hit a limit. There'll be dogs that you fail when you just can do that. And then there's people who don't know any of the science, but they just can connect with the dog. And I think that there'll there'll be dogs that you can't help doing that. And I I think you have to sort of tip the scales. Like I know myself, I can read a dog pretty well now, but I couldn't, like I had to learn that. That was not intuitive to me. And I think that a lot of the, the, you know, we've, I've, you know, grew up in a dog family. We've always had really good dogs. I've never owned a, except for like a Mally that I had, like I've never had uh, any problematic dogs, you know, like we've dogs that we've raised in, in my family and and me as an adult, they've always just been good dogs. Even before I was a dog trainer, there's a level of intuition in that. Like I know typically what a dog wants, but like I wasn't very good at reading a dog at all. I had to learn how to do that. And I think as well, like I was okay at sort of dog training in general, like, you know, getting basics out of a dog and, you know, taught some dogs to some pretty high level of sort of just feeling it out and going with the flow before I really understood behavioral science and how to apply it. And then noticed that sort of the turbo got attached to it. So like, I think for myself, they're probably pretty rough numbers. I, you know, I don't want, wouldn't get attached to these, but maybe in my own self, the 100% capability that I have in dog training, maybe 30% of that is intuitive and 70% of that, of that is learned. Mm. Um, but I don't, but I think that like that rate, those ratios, I think as long as there's a little bit of each, you're probably okay. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I think it's when, it's when people are like not intuitive at all and they've had to just, you know, they they do the inputs, they, they flick the levers, they push the buttons. I think that they'll hit a ceiling pretty early. Um, and I think that the people who really Uh, don't know any of the science and and aren't interested in learning it and just are able to sort of get a fair bit from the dogs, they too will hit a ceiling where they'll encounter a dog that that's just not going to work
1: for. Listening to you telling that story, it reminded me of this old mechanic that I went to when I was a young guy. One of my first cars was an old Holden Gemini. It was a shitty old car, but I spent a fair bit of money on the engine at the time. So I put in Isuzu race cam, I put in like a large extractor unit, And I had these two great big 42 mil downdraft Weber carbies on there. Needless to say, my, my neighbors hated me, hated me um, (laughs) because this, this little four cylinder little car sounded like a fucking diesel truck going around the corners. And yeah, yeah. yeah, Yeah. I had some neighbors that just hated me. But I remember one day the car wasn't running right. And the guy that I was living with, um, or we were living with, he was living with my family, a guy called Bill. He had a bobcat and tipper, but he was really good mechanically. he, actually helped me put in the cam and everything like that. But long story short, I said to Bill, do you know what's wrong with it? And he said, "No, nah, I don't. And he goes, but I've got this mate who's a really good mechanic. He goes, take it to him because there's nothing he can't fix. So I took it to him and we were sitting there talking and he's walking around the engine and he's putting a screwdriver to the engine, um, just putting it on different parts. And he sat there with his ear down there and I said, what are you doing? He goes, oh, your timing's out. I said, how do you know that? And he goes, mate, after all these years of working with cars and you know, like working with plugging cars in and knowing what they should sound like. He goes, I know what a car should sound like. And he goes, I can hear your timings out. And I said, really? You just do it by putting a a screwdriver to your ear? And he goes, yep. So he adjusted the timing and he was just doing all by feel and putting his ear to the screwdriver and putting it on the engine and he completely fixed my car. And he did it in about 30 minutes flat, fixed it completely. Yeah. And he just had this amazing feel, but you know, you could say that's intuition, but it came from experience. Obviously did his apprenticeship and he learned how to, you know, like plug all the cars into the system. But after a period of time, it just became intuition to him. Like then he knew how to do it. Mm. And that comes, that came through skill, you know, like he was certainly skilled in that. And I've seen trainers do a lot of that same sort of thing. So I think you can show intuition from the start and build skill and from there and add it into additional mentoring, or you can be mentored early, but then you can develop a feel for different things and you can start doing that noodling yourself, which I was using the the word phrase before, but you can do that in dogs yourself where you can say, you know, like I can see where I just need to do a little bit more and I need to do it non-traditionally, you know, because this dog is just not traditional in following the classical forms of what somebody else would do and suggest this is the way to do it. And they're very interesting people to learn from because they've just learned to, not break the rules, but bend them right to the fucking edge, you know, and they're amazing Mm -hmm. people. They really inspire you because they're just doing things that are dangerous, you know, which other people think are dangerous, but they're not. To them, they know this is what needs to be done this is what this dog needs or this is what this car needs, you know. Like if you don't do it this way, you'll never cap the performance of the dog because what you're working is is you're working within the traditions of what you know versus – what you can feel, what you understand is is beneficial to work with. And I think having that mm. scope of field is exciting. It's really enhancing to watch people do that. There's not a lot of people that exist in that element because there's a lot of people who are too afraid to do it. It's too scary to work outside the guidelines. The guidelines, people believe they're there for a reason and you can't mess with them. And I certainly believe that to certain degrees when you're learning things. Like as I said before, you know, like when you're learning to fiddle around with a guitar and you're learning how to do things, there's certain things that you have to learn. There's certain skill sets that you have to understand. But then you've got to learn how to push boundaries and you've got to learn to push back a little bit. And you've got to learn to, if you want to be someone of substance and you want to stand out, you have to learn how to use that intuition to start opening up and engaging in areas where other people just are scared to tread into you can't, sure. you can't be exceptional or you can't be well-known or develop your own story if all you're doing is following in the tracks of other people because then you become, you meld into who they are instead of who you are. Mm. Yeah.
0: You know, listening to you talk, Dan, I think as well, sometimes that sort of intuition in dog training, lack of it, can be covered up or made up for with experience. Mm. You've probably done it even more times than me for sure is where someone's having an issue with their dog and, you know, maybe they're a you know, training enthusiast or, you know, maybe even a professional who knows. And you see the problem immediately, you go here, look like this, and you can immediately bring up more from the dog You can get more out of the dog. You can achieve what they've been trying to achieve with the dog for a long time in a very short period of time. I've certainly done that with people and then had people say, oh yeah, but like you're a natural at it or infer that intuition part. And it's like, nah, I've just done this before. Yeah, <laughs> This is the first time that you've done this and the learning curve is steep. And certainly it was exactly for me as well, but- I have done this plenty of times, and I've got a good memory, and I've I've experienced it, and even I've watched other people with the same problem work through it, and I put that in the rolodex of things that I can work through. So I think, like from my point of view, I think that intuition in dog training is important for sure, but I think as in most things, nothing trumps hard work. I think that that's kind of the key to a lot of this kind of stuff is that, like I think that you need to be say in dog training you could go from being terrible to really good. And I think that you could go from being good to being exceptional. I think that there isn't like, so by that I mean that there is an element that like a certain sort of like je ne sais quoi, like you either have it or you don't, but that's to get like to the very, like the very top. Because I just think that anybody who's willing to work really hard and put in the yards and learn and take on things and, and, and apply it and not just, keep working at the same thing over and over, but try new things, try new experiences, seek out new information, give new inputs to the dog. I think that you can get really good just by doing that. Mm. Rarely in any industry or in anything does natural skill and intuition beat in the long run, somebody who's just willing to put in the work. You know, I think that that that's the, that's the
1: formula to success
0: is fucking hard
1: work. That's a very good point because I don't know anybody that's been very successful in what they've done without being fucking hard workers. You know, like there's a lot of yeah. people out there. They, it just doesn't fall in their lap. You know, they they do a lot of work and there's not a lot of credit given to all the Midnight Oil that they're burning thinking about this. You know, like the time spent, the notepads that have been filled – the afternoons that have been contemplated the skill sets that they've actually gone out with the training that they've done the consideration that's had to go into everything like there's just a myriad of things and processes and and mindsets that have been changed and changed and it might have just been small increments but it's enough that they've gone into some wild and and some scary places but they've thought you know without thinking like this how am I going to change the paradigms in which I'm currently fixed as a trainer into doing something that nobody's ever seen before. Because if Mm -hmm. we're all – like I said, if we're all just focused on copying each other and there's there's a lot of exciting things that I've seen people doing where everybody wants to copy it. I think you said it many years ago in one of their early podcasts we did – you can see blueprints of who people have been training or mentoring under because you can see elements of what they're doing because they're copying people that they find motivation and enthusiasm in. And that's great because those people are already doing good work and they're doing good things for their dog and they're showing people to have uh, better foundations and better relationships with their dog. So serious kudos. But if you feel that you're ready to start moving into some of those other areas, you have to become exploratory. In order to get to Mars, you have to first fucking work out how to build a ship that's going to get you there. And when you're there, you're going to have to realize how do I survive here until I get back home again? You know, I mean, that's all dangerous <laughs> thinking that yeah. people have got to come up and think with. You know, like they've got to they've got to have the strategy. They can't just go to Mars and think, "Fuck, now I'm going to die here because I can't get home." That's a kind of thinking we've got to avoid with our dogs. Is you know, now I've got my dog to this point. Where do I go from here? Because I don't know what to do anymore. Because I haven't planned the next step. You know, like I haven't yeah. thought out the strategy of how to return or how to communicate what the how the dog wins in this scenario. And that's where you need to think about it. And that's why I've said it's just this great big scavenger hunt that you really need to go on and it needs to be put on paper first. And it's so much work in the background that people don't realise and don't appreciate that there's been, let's say, hundreds of hours thinking about it and then maybe, let's say, 20 hours of actually putting it into the dog training and you just think, oh, where'd that come from? That just came from nowhere. Well, it's decades or years in, in the making of thinking about all these things critically to get you to a junction where you can think, now I can put it all together. Because I do have the mm-hmm. skill set and the capability to think outside the square of knowing all the foundations of learning behavior and how to implement it properly, that I can do things where I'm communicating with the dog on a whole new level. That's transpired more so in the last, I think, in the last... 15 to 20 years, especially, you know, like definitely in the last 15 years where there's been a rise in mostly females have done in the dog training field where I'm watching them, which only world champions were doing, you know, like 20 plus years ago. And now Mm. you're seeing people in their backyards doing it just for fun. Like the healing that's around in, in backyard training now is equivalent to what was the world's best and those dogs would be on a podium in, you know, some of the most advanced training disciplines back then and now it's common. Mm. You know, like people all over mm. the world are just trudging around the street doing it in for, to show people on their Instagram accounts. Yeah. There is a real trend in some serious fuckery going on with dogs, you know, but not bad yeah. stuff. I'm talking good stuff. This is really good stuff that's going into some really deep areas because people are thinking – It became the norm, but the the exciting stuff is what's happening next. You know, the new frontiers that people are now creating in training because they're already making that a standard sort of outcome for the dog. It's great. It's really exciting. Mm It's fun to watch. It's, you know, watching that evolution, the evolution in training and seeing that happen. Where you see a lot of trends recreating themselves and to steal a phrase that you were saying before is what is old is new again. Even so, some of that old is new again mentality is to create some of these new frontiers as well. Like they're bringing back things and then adding a new flair to it as well. You know, so even though they brought back something old, because of that, it transpired into something brand new. Like a new foundation was created because something that was old was brought back, which wasn't being used to its full potential, but now it is. Like it's on the, mm. it's on the forefront of being used to its full potential. That sort of shit is just wild. Yeah. Whew. Mm. I reckon that's time to wrap it up. It's a good time, area, guys. Yep, yeah, It's a good area on a late yeah. night.
0: Hey, that's it. Another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, just like, rate, share, subscribe, play it through your 80s boombox as you dance around town. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is jump into Patreon. We've got this massive backlog of content in there, educational stuff, funny stuff. Mm. I go live in there every month, answer questions. You can give as little as a dollar. You could give as much as a billion dollars if you're Daddy Elon and you want to send us to Mars. Another way to support the show,
1: if as you long as he that, tells us how to, to get jump back, jump in.
0: Yeah. Well, no, it's a one-way trip. The trip to Mars. You know, I had a friend in the army who was obsessed with being on the trip, the first trip to Mars. He was obsessed with it. I remember saying to him one day, I was like, mate, you don't really have any skill sets that are (laughs) really very useful on Mars. You have an extremely abrasive personality. No one likes being around. You don't have any like skills. I was like, mate, if they need a tail gunner on the space shuttle, you're the guy. Like, no
1: problem. You can do it. But... I just don't see you being on that trip. He'll be the Matt Damon that they leave behind. So you just say, hope you like (laughs) potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy it. (laughs) All right. Another way you can support the show is jump into
0: Teespring or Spring. Buy yourself some underpants, maybe a cap, maybe some other things, maybe some socks, wall tapestry, t-shirt. No drink bottle. Anything we sell, just jump in there and buy that. No drink bottles though. If you want to get in contact with us, the very best way to do that is to jump into the discussion group. A lot of cool information gets mm. passed around in there. It's where we're always looking for inspiration for shows. Yes, definitely. Um, got something to tell us, jump into there, start a conversation, everyone be nice. And if you want to get in contact with us directly, you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. Goodbye.